Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome to another episode of About Abroad, where it's my job to introduce you to people who have built amazing lives for themselves in various foreign corners of the globe. We're talking with expats and thought leaders about moving abroad, remote work, visas, and all the fun and practical knowledge that you need to know to follow in their footsteps. If you've ever dreamed of making a life for yourself overseas, maybe working remotely or embracing long-term travel, retiring or studying abroad, or even just taking a peek inside life beyond your borders, you've landed in the right place. My guest today is Christy DePaul. She joins me from Israel, but she's originally from the U.S., and she made her way over there about eight years ago and is now raising a family there, an interfaith family at that. So we dive in to all of this, what it was like moving to Israel, what has surprised her, what she loves about living there, some of the challenges and, and the fact that conflict is a little bit of a part of life. She doesn't shy away from any of these things, and she's able to go deep on some subjects ranging from immigration and visas all the way to what it's like raising a family and giving birth in Israel. We touch on a lot about Israel and kind of get past some of the preconceived conceptions that some of us might have and get into what life is really like there, especially through the eyes of a foreigner. She's also the founder of a company called Founders, which is a marketing firm and is a well-known and very well-respected journalist, content creator, and and someone that I look up to a lot in that space. So we touch on all of this, ranging from remote work and visas and what it's like just being an expat and how that makes us feel as a foreigner being abroad and, and what we've learned along the way. So we spanned a lot in this one, and I really enjoyed the conversation completely. I hope you guys will as well. Please help me in welcoming Christy to About Abroad. Yeah. So like what degree or I mean, I'm not going to ever ask any of my guests to be like a visa expert pro unless I'm bringing on like a uh, an immigration lawyer, which we do from time to time. But uh, this this isn't your bag. But I am curious, like to what degree are you able to to share? How does Israel look at people who want to come and be expats or spend significant time in Israel? Because like, for, for example, in Europe, I can say like, oh, yeah, for sure. Most people can come on a 90 day tourist visa. Then they got to leave for 90 days. And otherwise, you got to go through all these visa loops like do you have any any perspective on this? So I do. We and unfortunately, Israel has not yet bought into the digital nomad visa idea, which I think is we're up to what, like 28 countries and counting around the world, um, at least as of this recording. But the situation would be similar. You would apply for a tourist visa, 90 days, then you need to leave the country and you can return. I'm not exactly clear on the amount of time that you have to spend outside the country. I think years ago, I, I heard stories that people would go away for like a weekend and then come back on the tourist visa, which I thought was an interesting way of sort of gaming the system. Um, but the tourist visa would be the place to start. And then looking into um, either a work permit in Israel, which is something that you could try to pursue independently with an immigration lawyer, or if you've applied to a job here and then a company is sponsoring you probably a lot easier to go that uh, latter route though. Uh, okay. What did, what did you do personally? Um, personally, I was a tourist for a while. Uh, and then I, so Israel has a partner visa program, which is pretty interesting. Actually, I've, I've complained a lot about it privately. Um, but when you think about it, so I'm originally from the States and we have the green card system and it's a lot harder and you've got to be, you've got to be legally married. But in Israel, um, you could be somebody's partner. We, you know, when I 
moved here. Um, my now husband, then boyfriend, like we weren't even engaged. So it was really wonderful that there was sort of this access point that we could immigrate to the country through, even if it involved lots of bureaucracy. So that's how I got started um, getting a, a work permit to work in the country um, and then moving through three levels. And I'm now at like the third level, the third and final step. So I am the foreign spouse who uh, has received permanent status. And oh. I received, yes. yes. <laughs> You're moving on up in the world. <laughs> I am. Um, you know, it's funny, but the meetings remain the same. They're just as thorough. They'll even separate us and ask us questions like, oh, really? Oh, yeah. What did you it, like an interview process every time? Uh, yeah, not not every year, but it's it's happened most years where we get separated, and it's like, what did what did you have to eat last night? And it's so funny because I get like nervous. I start. <laughs> Like, there, were, there were baked potatoes. He said mashed potatoes. You're out. <laughs> <laughs> ah, like the stress level, you know, and I'm like, make sure we have the same answers. It's just really hilarious. So that's something that I'll be going through tomorrow. But I, the, the first time I got permanent status, it was um, in 2019. And it was literally three weeks before my daughter was born. So we, yeah, so I was quite large, you know, very pregnant and really relieved to have my ID called the Teo Datsiut, which is like, you use it for everything here, you know, um, instead of taking my passport to the hospital to give birth, like it, we would have had to go to through a court hearing to prove paternity that my husband was the father of our daughter. So because I had that, we didn't have to do all these other things. And it was like, just in the nick of time. Oh my God. Whatever. It's crazy. Isn't it kind of wild sometimes when you think about like all the hoops we jump through to, to just like live in another place? Like, like, I mean, when obviously I don't want to be like, you know, naive and say like, you know, they're just all these imaginary lines and there's no differences, but like, you know, they are really, they really are imaginary lines and they really are like, just like, like different places that you just want to go live. And it's really hard sometimes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> That is probably the understatement of the year. It's really yeah. <laughs> And you try to explain it to people who have no experience with it. And it's just, I mean, it's like, imagine your worst trip to the DMV, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Nobody likes going to renew their driver's license. We'll do that like every year with, with about 400 sheets of paper involving lawyers and tax attorneys and um, the police, you know, like doing interviews and stuff. I mean, I, I also get nervous by the way, like talking, do it, going to the police when I have to do these things. And, and I don't even think it's a particularly aggressive situation, but I'm just like, <laughs> like, like I'm going to screw my, I'm going to have done all this work and then just blow it in this like two minute conversation with the, with the police officer and I'm doing everything right, but it's totally like not logical, but it, the, the mind starts playing tricks on you. A hundred percent. And then you have like requirements for certain things. There was a letter that I needed to prove that I was single. And I'm like, where, where does one get that? <laughs> where does one get this? I, I, do I go to the U.S. Embassy? And how do I prove that? It was, you know. What I, was the I, what was the end result? Like, how, how did you prove that? I, I did go to the U.S. Embassy and they were familiar with that request because it's okay. the U.S. Embassy, um, the one I went to uh, here in Israel. And so they're like, OK, yeah, we can we can produce this letter for you that says, you know, essentially you're single, you're not married. So, wow. Yeah. 
This is wild. Yeah, you learn so much through this. I'm. I, I just went through a funny situation. I'm so I'm working on. Um, maybe by the time this airs, maybe it'll be finalized. I'm trying to get permanent residency in in Europe, and like, um, it's, I won't bore you with all the details, but like, it's a transferring of like going from temporary residency in Spain to permanent residency in Europe, which gives you options to live in other places, and it's a it's a process. Like we've been working on it for six months, and um, it's not a guarantee, and you know, we think we've done everything right, but as you you know, you, you never know. And um, like at the last minute, they're just like, oh, hey, by the way, like we have your apostilled marriage certificate, but we're going to need a brand new one that's been dated within the last three months. And I'm like, why? Like, <laughs> like this, this, cer- this certificate just says, which is like, by the way, not just a certificate from the government, but also a secondary certificate saying that the government, like, like an international apostille saying that this is like over and above, it is legit, it's real and internationally recognized as you you know all this. Um, and so anyway, I'm like, we already have this and we have like bank accounts we, showing we we share bank accounts. We have uh, like we have everything you could pot, like we share an address. We have the same last name. We have anything that you could ask for. They're like, no, we need another one that's within the last three months. Well, the only way to do that is to go back to the courthouse in the little courthouse in North Carolina where I got married, you know, eight, nine years ago and and redo that whole process. And I'm like, I'm in Europe. I can't go. I, I can't make a trip across the world to go do this. And so anyway, you you figure it out, you figure out that there's services to make it happen. And anyway, it's just, it's, it is a constant work in progress. And, and I gather you're, you're going through some of this again right now or something. Yeah. Um, and so I'm sort of, I'm on that path to citizenship and I do want to know, like, did you have to get another apostille document from North Carolina? I did. Yeah, I did. But I actually was able to do it all from a distance. Like there are ways to do it. Um, the, if you, it, I think you've probably learned this too, like what you see on the surface, like is built for the the masses, right? Like the normal situation, but we're edge cases, like we're, we're outside the norm and there's generally a way to make the edge case work too. Um, and so I, you know, digging deep, making lots of phone calls, emails, blah, blah, blah. Um, I ended up figuring out a way to be able to do it from a distance, but like this, the same thing happened to us when we were applying for our original visa to come to Spain, they said you needed a, um, a background check, like a certified background check that could only come from either the state bureau of investigation in the US or the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the State Bureau in my state didn't provide them. So I had to go to the FBI. Like to get a background check, I had to go to the FBI. Like these guys have more important things to do. And and it was a one year waiting list. And I was like, I need this in like two months. And you dig into it, you find out that there's a service that can for like a hundred bucks could expedite it in in a week or two weeks or something. But like at first you're just smacked in the face like I'm never gonna get this done now. Like this whole process is frozen. Maybe it's helpful for somebody out there fighting through a visa process right now. Like there's a way. (laughs) Yeah. The next level bureaucracy. Oh my goodness. Um, I mean, you're talking about getting something with an apostille. That's actually the reason why I was like three weeks before uh, giving birth, finally getting my ID here. It was because a clerk that we initially had submitted our documents to didn't believe that our marriage certificate was valid, even though it had the apostille. I had driven round trip 400 miles in one day to go to Harrisburg, which is the capital of Pennsylvania, um, in order to get that handy little stamp. And this person just didn't buy it. And that's actually illegal that they did not. Um, yeah, so it, there was a huge delay in our process. I would technically already be a citizen because it's been five years. So I think I'm looking at 2024. But like, it was it was intense. Um, and those things can happen, right? You get a clerk who's like having a great day, or you get someone who's sort of like, wait a minute, I'm going to make this a little bit challenging. 
It's a gray. It's always a gray area. And mm-hmm. like, like you ask like immigration lawyers for firm answers and they're like, I can't give you a firm like all on almost anything. There's never like, you're like, how long does this take? It depends. Um, you know, mm-hmm. how, do they, how much money do they want to see in the bank? It depends. Like there's, there's numbers and, and guidelines out there, but it depends as you say on the clerk that you get that day. And, uh, you know, if, if they enjoyed their breakfast that morning or not, and that's right. like, <laughs> your, the weight of your life hangs in that balance. <laughs> exactly. For anyone who's listening, hopefully you have some comfort level with ambiguity, right? Because you really need that to move abroad and to embrace life in another country from so many angles, especially the bureaucratic one. Is Israel a, two things on that, is Israel an ambiguous country by nature or is it very like rigid and they're you, black and white? And then is it very bureaucratic or is there like ways to bypass the red tape? Like how would you stereotypically define it? I mean, can it be both and? So it's very bureaucratic, but at the same time, it's not like the states where unless you have the exact things, you know, you will not move forward. Sometimes there's a little bit of leeway or they're able to look at something else. And it's not a rigid country um, from that perspective. So you have to know, though, what you're getting yourself into. And often it's helpful to have an immigration lawyer because those are the people who understand not like necessarily loopholes, but substitutions for certain things or being able to make sort of like a counter argument. But it's definitely not the kind of country where it's like, oh, you didn't bring, you know, the exact denomination of shekel and you're out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That I, I, I would say it's the same in a place like Spain, for example. Like, there's a lot of guidelines, and there, and and sometimes they can be like stubbornly rigid when you're, and it catches you off guard because the nature of the culture is very like, uh, whatever, you know. Well, you know, you said twelve, it's ten. We'll call it even. Um, we're but nap like, in the middle of the day, right? Yeah, exactly. It's a pretty like laid back atmosphere. But then suddenly they will smack you in the face with like some rigidity where you're like, hold on, let's just think outside the box here. Like, you know, it says you need a bank account with 10,000 in it, but I have two bank accounts with 6,000 each. Like, isn't that enough? Like, like, you know, why, why is that not enough? And, um, and then, you know, so they won't, sometimes they won't like think outside the box in that way, or they won't go outside the box. Um, but generally speaking, it's like, it's pretty, pretty laid back. And like, even like, um, talking about money, like there, a lot of times there, when you're doing your visa, they won't say like, you need X. They'll just say like, you need enough to sustain yourself. And then, well, what does that mean? And it's like, it leaves this gray area where you're like, well, I don't know exactly what you want. And they're like, just enough, you know, just prove that you have enough. And you're like, oh, I'm uncomfortable with that. Um, so get get comfortable with ambiguity. I, I like the way you put that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will have to be sort of repeating that as a mantra tomorrow for, for our meeting. And of course, we'll be showing up with collages of photos as well. That's a thing that is one of, do, I don't, do you have to produce those, these collages of photos that show sort of like your no. life? Oh, you do yeah. that, really? I th- I've seen that in like a movie. I've never actually talked to somebody that that had to do that. So you're you're legit like proving your you guys are together. Yes, yes, proving the sincerity of our relationship, and it just gets <laughs> funnier as time goes on because you know you you're raising a family, you're adding a kid, and you're like it's just so clear through all the photos. But it's, I mean, of all the things that we have to do, all the boxes we have to tick, that's actually kind of a wonderful one. I enjoy making the little collage. I'm sure the clerk could care less. But it's really, it's cathartic and it's kind of beautiful for me to look back on the past year of yeah. our lives. How long have you been there in Israel now? Um, coming up on eight years wow. in the spring. 
Mm-hmm. So you mentioned you're from the U.S. and um, I, is it correct to say like your your partner kind of brought you there? Like that's the reason that you moved there or did you have some like long desire to go live in Israel or both? <laughs> so I always wanted to live overseas. That That's absolutely true. Um, although I didn't uh, study abroad in college and that's one of my main regrets about undergrad. But um, yeah, my partner is Israeli and he has two girls. We've got, so I've got um, teen stepdaughters now. And uh, a decade ago, they were a lot younger. And I knew it was always on the table, moving back to raise them here in this culture, um, the culture of his family, and being able to sort of change our lives from that perspective. So I, I was like, okay, I'm open to it. Let's let's do this. It's an adventure. I'm, I'm ready. And so it was really fascinating to watch their transformation after coming here because they knew basic Hebrew already. And then they, kids with their brains, you know, being like somewhat like sponges, they absorb so much and they had tutors and suddenly like their sort of language trajectory was just like this, like a hockey stick, you know, and they were learning how to talk about quadrilaterals, like all all the things they had to learn for school. Yeah. Um, and reading is from right to left. It's a different alphabet. And so like initially they, I felt like I was kind of in the same cohort with them and then they took off and I I had to be learning this language, learning Hebrew as an adult, right? Wow. Like after age I can't, three. I can't imagine that's, that's gotta be really challenging. <laughs> Yeah, uh, that, yes. Another understatement of the year. (laughs) Unbelievable understatement. I mean, for me, you know, someone who works... Um, in in content strategy and development, it's it's really critical for me to be able to understand what's going on in the world around me, and having a, a decent grasp of the language was a really important part of that. I am also unfortunately a perfectionist, and that is not helpful when you're trying to learn a language, as you may know. Um, so I enrolled in an ulpan here. It's a, the word is means studio, and I made some some good friends um, in that. I should give a little shout out to ulpan bites. It was a really nice uh, in-person convening, really relaxed. Like a language school or, or like a social thing? A language school. Um, yeah. And so I did a few uh, levels through that school and I met people who were like me, who were foreign partners. Um, there, there was even a student here who was from an Arab city who was learning Hebrew and they also teach Arabic um, at that school. So it was a really interesting introduction into an aspect of the culture that I was not familiar with. And so I, I really got to sink my teeth into the language there and feel more comfortable conversing, right? Because as much as you can read and play Duolingo, and I love doing those things, it's being able to have a conversation successfully, right? That is so critical. And it's something that, my gosh, like I, at first there were so many false starts and stops. I would just get to being like, why can't I get through 10 minutes without switching to English or, you know, probably two minutes. And now it's much better. And I remember the point where I um, this is funny, Chase. I remember the point where I sort of unlocked eavesdropping. I was on a train um, and this couple across, seated across from me, they were talking about me. And I'm like, <laughs> hey, I understand you. And I didn't care that they were what they were saying. I'm just like, this is amazing. This is good stuff. And I really felt like I progressed at that point. I have a confession. That was a secret dream of mine. I'm not, I'm not getting like that almost to a T exactly what you said. I was like, I want to be able to speak a language well enough to where I know when someone's talking about, cause I've had that happen where you're like, particularly, I remember being in, um, I was in China for a few months and I'd like, I'd studied some Mandarin and like could speak a little bit, like I could order food or like, you know, give 
a little bit of direction to my taxi driver or something like that. But I wasn't like having conversations in in Mandarin. But I, so I remember and like be, I mentioned China in particular because it was the first time that I recall being like on a subway and being like, I am the the only uh, non-Asian person in this whole car. Like I, I'd clearly stand out. Whereas like growing up in the US or being in Europe like you, it's very it's a little bit like more multicultural. And so anyway, I was just I was remember being caught off guard by that and knowing that some people were like blatantly talking about me, like staring at me. But I'm like, I can't prove it. I can't say it. Uh, I can't understand what you're saying. So I remember thinking like, I'm going to get to a point where I speak a language good enough to where I can understand when someone's where I can eavesdrop and understand when they're talking about me. And I I did have that moment in in Spain and it it brought a lot of joy to my life, even though they weren't saying nice things. I love it. That's that's pretty amazing. I'm glad we share that in common. That's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's I mean, I all the time, right? Like as you're sort of as you're immersed in a different language, you sort of I mean, I kind of feel like I can't help but learn even if I'm not really trying. And now that I have a little one who is in it's it's like a nursery school preschool. Um she's three and a half. They call it the gun, which is like garden. Um she'll be teaching me things. Like she'll come home and be like, "Mommy, you know, this means whatever." Like uh, they had snails there. And I, I know a lot of types of animals just being a mom here. It's kind of like territory. But I was like, oh, zone. okay, that's that's a new one. You know, you learn the word for pine cone and just like. Like otherwise, why would you ever need to know the word for pine cone? But right. that, this has been delivered to your doorstep now. <laughs> right. So I'm like, okay, cool. And it certainly helps with reading lots and lots of board books. Yes. Oh, yeah. I can I can imagine. That's got to be a, a great way to learn, learning through the eyes of a, of a young one that's, like you said, already a sponge and a, absorbing so much. Do you speak to her in, in Hebrew or in English or a mix of both? Um, I speak to her in both. I think primarily English. Um, we do speak in Hebrew uh, quite often, but I think, you know, I want her to hear the the native accent that her sisters and her her dad has. Um, I, of course, have a little bit of an American accent. It's not so strong. I'm, I'm self-conscious. Good for you. It. That's awesome. <laughs> You know, and, and I, I tell this sort of story about uh, my dentist who was from Cincinnati originally, and he's someone who is totally fluent in Hebrew, but couldn't care less about nailing the accent whatsoever. And it's just like those Americans, bless you. I, I, like you make life wonderful. You make it easier for me. You make me feel like, you know what? I shouldn't be so self-conscious because people are going to understand and they're just going to be glad that you're trying. I I think there's a, I love those people too. And it, it cracks me up. It makes me cringe a little bit sometimes. I'm like, Oh, just, just put a little accent on there. Um, just try. But I, I, in the end you like just have to laugh at it. And, um, and yeah, they do, they make you feel better about your, uh, about your capabilities. You're like, at least I'm, even if I'm not saying it perfectly, at least there's some, I'm, I'm trying to do the accent. They, uh, that brought to mind something that I was going to bring up, but now it's, uh, it's, it's escaped me. But anyway, um, I think that's, I think that's pretty, pretty phenomenal that you've learned Hebrew, even in a, in a real, I mean, seven, eight years you've been there, but like there's, you know, it, that takes a lot of effort. It's easy for people to get by who are native English speakers in a lot of places around the world. I don't know if that's the case in, in Israel, but you see a lot of people that are living in a place for 20 years and they barely speak the, uh, the native language. And it, it, for me, that's always like kind of mind blowing. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people, you know, it's it's uncomfortable, right? It is just inherently uncomfortable to put yourself out there and to be a version of yourself in another language where you're not as witty, you're not as intelligent, you're not going to come across as authoritative. Sorry, but no, like you don't have all those tools that you spent decades accumulating in your native tongue. So yeah, I think it takes a level of vulner- vulnerability and bravery. And, you know, there were, there are certainly 
a lot of instances where I just feel like, oh man, I still fall short. But um, to have even a working proficiency, I think you've got to celebrate the small wins when it comes to language acquisition. And um, I will say this, there are lots of immigrants in this country. And so I am often mistaken for uh, someone who speaks a language other than English. And I've had like older ladies shouting at me when I'm out for a run. They're shouting at me in Russian. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm not. What is it that makes me look Russian? <laughs> no, I know. I'm like, okay, I get that I have lighter hair, but come on. And I, I'm shouting sort of back at them in Hebrew saying, I'm not Russian. I don't speak Russian. <laughs> and they don't believe me. They refuse. And they continue. And they continue. <laughs> You you brought up something there kind of interesting about like, you know, not being able to be as witty or as authoritative. And I've heard someone describe this as um as, you know, like you you lose a piece of yourself with with uh, another language. And that and I find that so true. And you, you I think you lose a little piece of yourself because of the things you just said. And you might also like find a little piece of yourself in some ways. And and by that I mean like sometimes I'll like like uh in Spain, people talk a certain way with a certain like mannerisms, hand gestures, um, facial expression. Like sometimes it kind of sounds like aggressive, like you'll hear two people just having a conversation. And to me with a with a naked ear just seems like a little bit aggressive, but they're just having a casual conversation. And as my language skills have progressed, I find myself kind of doing the same thing. But if I were to switch back to English, my tone, my like body, uh, uh, like mechanics would totally change back to like the way that I speak in English. And I just think that's really it's it almost feels fake sometimes. I'm like, am I just like acting? Am I like impersonating? Um, but I've, I've talked with other people about this and and. This is true, you know, around the world. And it's kind of a, a fascinating thing. And I, I think it's one of the fun parts of, of being abroad for an extensive period of time is you get to experience those kind of things. Yeah, I would I would absolutely agree with you that you you do lose a piece of yourself, but you you gain like another facet of your identity. You become like the the Spanish version of Chase, right? Or I'm I'm the Israeli version of Christy. And there are times where it feels a little facetious, like, okay, I, my hand gestures are just out of control here. And is that authentic? But as you're leaning into the language more, you do, like you become that version of yourself. And so I found myself being like the sort of a similar um, situation here, hearing people, my husband even, you know, I, I'm like, okay, you're, you're not mad, but this is very loud. So... <laughs> It took a long time to really understand like a, a vigorous Israeli conversation and the difference between that and like actual livid anger. And now I've, I'm totally good and I get it, and, you know, way more comfortable. But, but like my cortisol levels used to rise a lot, you know, um, and seeing the way people greet each other here too. Like you'll be in line at the supermarket, just the distance between people. That was really a challenge during COVID, right? Like we had to all stand pretty far apart from each other. Well, in a lot of Mediterranean cultures and Israel, is no exception. Um, personal space is not really a thing that you're worried about. You might be gesturing in a conversation. Someone's like your hand is in their face and their hand is in your face and it's no big deal. So when you're standing in line, um, people are very close to you. And I've, I've been like waiting to purchase something and a guy will come over and he'll like shake the hand, kiss the cheek of the guy in front of me. And like, Hey, I haven't seen, you know, like the, the equivalent of like, this is a long lost reunion. And they probably just saw each other last week. (laughs) 
they need to have like a meeting like right in front of me very very close and you just become a lot more comfortable with all these things that are not second nature to you. I, I have a theory that this is like very hard for us as Americans um, because we're just used to like the wide open spaces and like we, we value our space a lot I've come to realize I, I don't think I really knew that like 10 years ago but we uh and, and in retrospect it seems kind of obvious but like we put a ton of value on on space and like uh, personal space and our yard and like like you know even even the homes we live in like we want a lot of space and like other cultures um don't as much like it's just you know you, you're gonna brush shoulders when you walk by each other it's not rude it's just hey there's a sidewalk we're both on it we touch shoulders life goes on I think there was a point where you said your cortisol levels go up my cortisol levels would go up too I'd be like get out of my way man like you make some space here <laughs> but I've, I've come come to love it and the warmth that comes with that like human interaction which was tough to it, Spain is is similar in in that way you know I think you're right about the Mediterranean countries like there's a warmth there there's a touchy feeliness that that connects people and they and they you know they live that way every single day and so I, I came to live that way and then kind of missed it when it when it went away yeah, I bet. So when you go back to the States, have you found that you sort of have to culturally reacclimate and become like this version, more muted version of yourself where you're not gesturing and standing close to people? Yeah, a little bit. I get, I get back into it pretty quick, but I notice a lot of things. Like there's just things that jump out to me that I'm like, oh, I never realized we were like that. And and now I see it very clearly. Um, one of those things is the space thing. Like I think I actually mentioned this on a recent podcast episode too. So I won't like regurgitate the whole story. But when I was recently back, I was walking on a sidewalk with a friend and it was a very wide sidewalk actually. And there was a lady coming at me with a stroller and her baby in the stroller and she like went off the sidewalk into the grass like 20, 30 feet in front of me to like show that she was going to give us like give us space. And we could have all passed each other on the sidewalk. But she, it was like this indication of space giving that I realized I was like, dude, that would never happen in anywhere in Europe or, or the Middle East or Asia, like it, pretty much anywhere else in the world. I don't think people would like value space, personal space so much that she would do that. Like if anything, we should have moved off the sidewalk. She's pushing a stroller, but but it didn't even cross my mind. And um, and so anyway, that was that was one of the things. And then there's yeah, there's there's lots of things like that um, that I that I see. But I don't know. How about how about you? Like when you when you go back, is it are the things you have to reacclimate to? Definitely um, driving, maybe a little less, a little less aggressively, um, depending on where I am. Like if we're visiting the Pacific Northwest or something like this, um, talking, you know, uh, the gesture thing can probably feel a little bit of overwhelming depending on what part of the country you're in and how uh, people typically communicate. So sometimes I'm just like dialing that down a little bit. Um, I'm also, there's, you know, what was I going to tell you about? There was something that was sort of like, oh yeah. Oh, when it comes to, so like we talk about physical space, right? But I think that that personal space concept extends to conversations, right? There are things you will not ask in some cultures, whereas in others, it's totally fine. Like when are you having the next baby, right? Or like, are you having babies at all? <laughs> what All these questions that feel like could be very invasive in one place in another are just totally acceptable. Um, and then conversely, there are things like here, uh, as an example, like in the States, we have, we have baby showers, we celebrate the life before it arrives. Um, in Israel, this is not a thing. There's a bit more of a superstition around bringing uh, a life into the world and you don't celebrate it until it's actually here and everything is okay. So you do not, you don't put up a crib, none of that stuff doesn't. Whoa, really? 
Yes. Is it considered like bad luck or something? Or is it just like a, a, like a, just a non-issue? It's just, we don't talk about it until it's here. Yeah. I mean, you could talk about it, but even, even uh, the, the sentiment, right? Like people in the States would say, oh, congratulations. Wow. Oh, you're expecting. And here you wouldn't say congratulations until the baby comes. You would say something a little more cautious, like tova, like in a, in a good hour. Like may uh, they arrive. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like um, in due time, everything right. will be okay. Yeah. Yes. I mean, granted I did have a baby shower and I think, you know, our friends and family were a little bit like, well, they were excited slash weirded out. Like, what do we do? What, <laughs> how do we navigate this? How do we do this baby shower right. thing? Yeah. So if you I, think about it, it's kind of an interesting thing. Like uh, to say, congratulations, like congratulations. You're about to endure nine months of a lot of challenges. It's going to be pretty tough on your body. Uh, but in the end, there'll be something, you know, really great there. And like, maybe we just start celebrating it when the great thing arrives. <laughs> yeah. There's a, there's some, uh, some logic there. And this, <clears throat> this might be a good point in the podcast to share that I am expecting. Oh, congrats. That's really? amazing. This is, so your, your second one that you're having is, in Israel? The, yeah. The second one. Yes. Congratulations. Yeah. Oh, that's Thank amazing. You. Yeah. I'm happy to share the gender with you, Chase, but we, we cannot broadcast it. So okay. you have to All right. Off air. We'll be right back to the show after a quick break for a note from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by my good friends over at Greenback Tax. As an American citizen, I'm from one of only two countries in the entire world that requires I pay taxes on my global income, regardless of which country I'm actually living in. So when I started my expat journey back in 2015, I knew my tax situation was about to get complicated. Fortunately, I discovered Greenback and I've never looked back. Greenback is 100% focused on helping U.S. expats with their tax situation. And to date, they've filed almost 50,000 returns for nearly 15,000 happy customers from more than 200 different countries. After seven years working together, I can say with confidence that they make one of the most painful parts of life abroad an absolute breeze with their automated systems, friendly advisors, and expertise in the very specific niche of U.S. expat taxes. Also, for those of you who may have fallen behind on your taxes and or you're trying to get ahead of tax season in 2023, Greenback has your back here as well. They can assist with late filings to ensure you don't encounter any problems with the IRS and to make sure you start 2023 off right. Tax season is on the horizon. Learn more about Greenback today by going to greenbacktaxservices.com via the link in the show notes. If you've made it this far into the episode and you're still enjoying yourself, then I would love to ask a quick favor. Open up the app that you're using to listen to this podcast and leave a quick review. You can do this in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and really just about any platform that allows podcast listening now. If you can't find that in the interface of the app, then scroll down in the show notes and find ratethispodcast.com slash aboutabroad, and you should be able to leave it from there. Thanks so much, guys. We really appreciate it and hope you enjoy the rest of the show. All right, we're back. I know you guys don't know, and uh, I I feel very privileged. So uh, that's that's congrats, huge congrats. That's amazing. Thank you. What uh, so baby showers are one thing. I, while we're on the subject, anything else that jumps out at you is like a you know, let's say we have some other expecting mothers out there considering moving to Israel. There's a huge demographic of those uh, listening to about abroad. What anything else that jumped out at you is like this is different than what it would have been in the U.S. Yeah. Um, for sure. So postnatal, prenatal care here is very, very different from in the States as is postnatal care. Of course, uh, you have to secure health care and um, it is uh, a completely different animal here in terms of the expenses as well. It's a lot less expensive um, depending on your visa status, right? Uh, so 
I had, I think with my first pregnancy, like 16 ultrasounds. Um, so I was wow. able to see. That's a lot for people that don't know. <laughs> yeah, that is, that is an awful lot. Usually you'd get like two and maybe if it's a high risk pregnancy, I don't know, four or five. Um, it's also very common to do a lot of uh, genetic testing here, um, mm. scans, amniocentesis. So Israelis are really into testing. I had a, a doctor or a nurse recently explain it to me. Um, she said, look, uh, after, and, and she, she was sort of speaking from a sociological perspective. Um, she was a, a Jewish nurse and she was saying, look, after, after what our people went through with the Holocaust, we are very, very cautious in terms of tests and ensuring our health and that everyone's going to be okay. And, you know, as a non-Jew, I'm glad to be included in that. Um, certainly some of these tests and scans are, are private. So you do um, pay extra for that. But then the postnatal care as well, you go to something here called which literally translates to a drop of milk. And you you meet with nurses who help you figure out like breastfeeding, formula, what to do, baby gaining enough weight. I don't know. And, you know, a lot of stuff in America that like maybe you have a midwife helping you, but likely not. And you've got to navigate that on your own, which just seems bewildering. Um, I think Israel has the highest birth rate in the OECD um, in terms of OECD countries. So it's also a place where there's just a playground in every corner. So it's I have this perception um, that like and it'd be interesting to ask your perspective. Uh, like I think in the U.S. we recognize that healthcare is really expensive and everybody complains about that, but we also have this like well you get what you pay for kind of thing. So we we tend to think we pay a lot and then we also just have like amazing healthcare and and not I'm not like an American hater or anything like that. Like, I actually love where I come from and all that. None of that here. I just don't think that's true. Like my experience has been, I get amazing healthcare in countries ranging from across Latin America, uh, from Latin America to Europe to Asia. I've had like incredible experiences at hospitals, doctors, offices, very technologically advanced, um, very clean, sanitary, great, you know, able to speak English if needed. Like it's, and and all of that on top of like thorough and cheap (laughs) comparatively. And it sounds, you know, I have the perception that would be the case in in Israel, but I don't know. Like, would would you agree? Yes, definitely. And you know, same uh, about being proud to be from the U.S. and and being an American. But when it comes to healthcare, I, I do feel that our system is particularly broken back in the states. Um, largely, I mean, and a lot of uh, sort of socialized medicine and and the healthcare around that is going to come out of taxes. So we kind of can't decouple the two. You can't talk about one without the other. So it's nice if you want like lower taxes. But you also have to pay for this fundamental human right somehow. Um, so taxes, of course, are higher here. And what is, there are some things you won't see. Like you won't go to a doctor's office here and see like a tropical fish aquarium, right? <laughs> they, they put their their uh, their funds into other endeavors. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. But you will go to see like a for a routine gynecological exam and they have an ultrasound. And so yeah. that, that preventative care helps you know, um, that helps women avoid horrible things like cervical cancer and ovarian cancer. And just there's, there are a lot of approaches that seem very proactive in other countries that I wish the U S could adopt, but it would probably require like a fundamental shift in the system. Oh yeah. So many ripple effects. It's like really, really tough to do all the reform. I don't, I wouldn't, you know, claim to have any idea how to do that. It's just, I think a lot of us just wish it was different there, but you and I are living in different places and, uh, and, and for now enjoying the the benefits of the, of the better system in that way, at least I think, um, you know, we're, we're very fortunate to be able to, to experience that because I think it gives us a different 
perspective. We haven't really, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious, like how, so you, you moved to Israel, um, you, what'd you say? Eight years ago? Is that coming up on eight years? Yeah. Coming up on eight years ago. So can you go back to that moment a little bit? Like I'm, I would be really fascinated to know what that transition was like, what, what excited you, what caught you off guard, what was hard. Um, you know, we kind of tackled the visa stuff and like the, the bureaucratic stuff, but just like culturally, like settling in, like what, what life was like. And cause I think that's the perspective people, listening perhaps have that are either making that move there or considering making that move there or just curious to know like what was it like when you when you make the move to Israel you're literally the first person on the show to to have that experience so I'm I'm genuinely curious thank you so much for that very in-depth question and I, I'm thinking Chase you know when you're like what was that moment like I'm like there were so many moments so many moments yeah it's a conglomeration yeah. of, of moments sort right. of an unfair question to be honest <laughs> I, I'm thinking you know it took a long time in terms of like settling in right that probably took well over a year to even feel kind of remotely settled in in a way I had started visiting the country the year prior and spending sort of like a month on a month off um, with my now husband and so that helped me to acclimate a little bit that was a little strange because of course the time zone difference and stuff. But other than that, you're just like, okay, you're getting used to like this sense and and sounds of a completely new place. And so I didn't, it's not like I landed here and it was like completely day one. I, I had a sense of what I was getting into. Um, that said, I remember that the weekend, you know, I was packing up all of my stuff. My husband was already here. Um, so I was leaving Pittsburgh and it was snowy, right? So you talked about scraping ice off of your windshield this morning where you are in Germany. And I'm sure I did that, um, that it was like a cold February morning. And I had tons of like big, heavy suitcases, right? And you're trying to wrangle all this stuff on your own. And you're looking at the other travelers who might be going on vacation. And you almost want to apologize and say, no, I'm really moving overseas. I'm not like a, someone who just chronically overpacks and doesn't know what they're doing. So I, I think I was schlepping like, I don't know, five or six bags. And they were so heavy. And I got... I got up to the counter. It was United. I think I was flying. And they said, look, sorry, your suitcases are just a little too heavy. So I was that person. I've been that person so many times, just like taking stuff out and throwing. I even threw some things away. I'm like, don't care. You know, here we go. <laughs> I'm moving to Israel, whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You guys want some of this? Here you go. Yeah. Have it. Um, yeah. And then landing here and it's just, I, I mean, the of course, the weather is totally different. So as you mentioned, ice this morning, I was a little nostalgic, actually, for cold weather. I think the high today is uh, 70 degrees. And I'm, of course, in a sweater because that's... I'll, I'll swap with you in a second. <laughs> I mean, there's something very charming about... The, no, totally. The cold, like in the wintertime and as it gets closer to the holidays. But yeah, it took, it took a lot of time to adjust. I think, you know, one of the things that was different was that of course um there's we have an extended family here um because of my husband and it's not like he just uh walked right back into his old life he had been in the states for i think 15 years so there there was a significant amount of time away um you know they sort of joked about him being the american um which is always kind of funny but uh it's it's been wonderful to have that extended network of people so i've not really been in any sort of expat bubble in fact i i think i have one friend here who's a native English speaker came from Canada. Um, otherwise, everybody else is Israeli, which has really does, helped me. Does that expat bubble ig exist if you wanted to immerse in it or, or if, it if, yeah, it does. Okay. It, so there's does. A, there's yeah. a, I mean, cause it's a pretty international place. Yeah. I, I think actually we're something like 26% foreign born. There's a huge amount of wow. immigrants in this country. Yes. Where, where are you exactly actually just to set the stage for everyone? 
Yeah. So I'm in a city called Nesciona, which is um, south of Tel Aviv. And I'd love to tell you how long it takes to drive there, but it really depends on the time of day. So <laughs> maybe two hours, could be 20 minutes. Okay. Um, wow. That big a difference. Uh, yeah. Maybe yeah. an hour. I'm exaggerating, maybe an hour right. and a half. That's crazy. Yeah. Um, so thankful for remote work in so many ways. Um, but the one piece I think of remote work that has made sort of acclimation challenging, and this would go for anybody anywhere, um, is that you really have to go out of your way to meet people. And as a business owner, it's been, that's, that's been an imperative for me, right? And it's like, okay, Israel has so many startups Israel has so many startups. I think we're second in the world to Silicon Valley um, in terms of the the number per capita. Uh, so it feels like you could just walk outside of your apartment building, like kind of like trip over, you know, founder or planning something new and amazing. But I did have to go to meetups and meet people. And I was a member of Startup Grind early on. And that really helped me um, to get to know more people, expand my um, my personal network and also build some like social capital because that's something that you really don't feel you have. Oh, it's so vital. It's so vital. And if you, if you just trap yourself in your bedroom and, uh, with your laptop, like it, you'll, you can feel connected to perhaps your teammates or clients or something at a distance to a degree, but you have to fill that void with, uh, with real humans around you. Can, can you actually set the, like, give some context about what you do? Um, and and as a piece of this, the, the real part I think is really interesting is like how you more made that happen to, to fit into your lifestyle of, of living abroad and such. I think that could, that could be helpful for some people. Yes, definitely. So I, I previously was a remote employee. So remote was not something that was um, totally foreign to me. I'd been working remotely, I think for a couple of years prior to moving here. And I started writing about remote work actually. And I, I remember my first article was December of 2015. So it's been seven long years since I wrote uh, my first piece for flex jobs, um, which I, as, as I'm talking about, about it on the recording. I hope it's still live, but it, um, it is. <laughs> cool. um, so, it, you know, I was already plugged into this space way back when, but I felt that like moving to a new place, it gave me a chance to, um, I mean, when you're starting over with so many things, I, maybe it's almost like, what do I have to lose? I might as well give this a try too, um, especially in a country where people have like, it's, they call it chutzpah, right? Like they're like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to try this and, and see if I can do this and maybe it'll be successful. Maybe it won't, but I, at least I'll be able to look back and say that I, I did it instead of being kind of, um, cautious and not being sure of what your next steps are. So I thought, okay, well I could start, you know, I see startups here. They need, um, they need content services. They're not familiar with the U S market. So it was born out of what I saw as a local need, something that I could provide. And I started to build up a team around me almost immediately. Um, folks who are also remote, largely in the States, though I have um, a teammate based in Nairobi as well. And yeah, and it was, a, it was a way to connect with people locally. It was a way to provide needed services in terms of content marketing. Um, but it also built on my uh, past career, which I came from the education space and educational technology. And I did global marketing in that realm. And so a lot of our clients have interestingly been from the States, although we have had many Israeli clients as well and, and a few from Europe. But um, as our reputation has grown, it's it's interesting. It really doesn't matter where you are anymore. And so that's what I would tell listeners, really, that you might go to a place and feel like, well, I've got to be the U.S. link in this place. But that's not necessarily the case. Your clients could literally, they could be anywhere. 
Yeah, that's so important. And I, that's exactly why I wanted you to tell the story, because I think that's inspirational for people. I get emails a lot of times saying like, I'm, you know, I'm in, uh, you know, banking and, you know, I'm a, I'm a teller at a bank in, in, uh, in Kansas City. And like, you know, what, how could I possibly convert that to remote? Am I, I'm looking at moving to, um, to Singapore and like, you know, but I want to work remote and I don't know how to bridge those, you know, how do I connect those dots? And I, I just think hearing from people like yourself who have managed to make those connections, like you, you have knowledge and skills and experiences that translate and often like going to a new place, like you get there to Israel, right? You, you're looking around, you see a, a, a gap in the market that you can, and that's a void that you see you can fill. And often you have to just kind of like get there to figure that out and, and take that leap of faith. And um, yeah, I mean, you, you epitomize that, I think. Right. I mean, it's not something you can necessarily plan for in advance. Back to our comfort with ambiguity. You've got to be ready to sort of to shift as you need to. Um, but of course, as folks who are listening or considering moving abroad, you, you do need to have, it, it's practical to have a certain amount of savings in place, right? You want to be like part of that preparation for uh, uncertainty is being able to get as many ducks in a row so that your life is less stressful um, once you do arrive in a new place. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's the story of, of founders, how it began. And I, it's, I was just saying the other day, you know, if I would have had a crystal ball back in like 2015, early 2016, to look ahead to see where we are now in terms of like the clients we've worked with, major philanthropic foundations like the Barbara Bush Foundation, um, working with all kinds of really cool advisory firms and tech startups, some that have landed, you know, seven figure investment. I never would have predicted that. And I would be so happy that I'm like, good. And there's a quote that I'm going to provide you with after we finish recording. It's a Mark Twain quote. And it's usually behind me, although we're not recording in my typical office. And it talks about um, taking chances and essentially that, you know, um, if you, it's like looking back 20 years from now, are you going to be, are you going to regret the things that you did do or the ones that you didn't do? And really going for um, pushing outside your comfort zone and doing the things that like you really never thought you could do. And reminding yourself all the time that no one is going to mint you into an entrepreneur or, you know, a business owner or whatever you want to be like, like there's, there's no credentialing for that. And people kind of like always, I feel that especially we as Americans, right, we kind of like want to tick boxes and, and feel that we are qualified, but no one is going to come down from some mountain somewhere. Sorry for the biblical reference. It's where I live. And like, no one's going to anoint you as whatever. Um, that's something we have to remember. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Like if you don't stretch, you don't grow and, and you have and getting like physically getting out of your comfort zone. And, and then, you know, in terms of like moving from one country to an next to another is, is one thing, one way to, to stretch and grow. And then, you know, trying new things, adventuring into entrepreneurship, putting yourself out there is another way. And, and I think like you, you learn more from your failures than you do your successes. So worst case scenario, you fail, you learn a lot and you take those experiences on to the next, uh, to the next path. I've moved, you know, bring it back to like the abroad thing. I've moved to countries and been like, or, or gone to spend significant time there and been like, I actually don't like this. Like I'm not, this is, this was a bad decision, um, you know, and made many mistakes along the way, but you know, great experiences came out of those. And I learned a lot and I, I took that forward and ultimately ended up in a, in a good place. So yeah, I, I encourage people to like, give that a shot, whether that, that leap of faith is going to another country, if that calls to you or starting the business or whatever it may be, venturing into remote work, because that's what you, you really want. You want that location independence. Um, 
you know, there's a, where there's a will, there's a way. Speaking of like quotes and stuff, I remembered earlier, I, I lost my train of thought and I was like, what was that thing I was going to mention? You were talking about accents and like how, like how you, it makes you feel like you're kind of ashamed of your accent. And I remembered the quote that I was trying to reference was behind every accent, there's a very brave person. And I think that's re- been really helpful for me to remember, um, you know, talking about going back to the US. Like when I go back now and I encounter someone who's trying to speak English, but struggling or whatever, I have so much empathy for them because I'm like, you're probably, you're, you are a very smart, intelligent person. And then on top of that, brave to be trying this and in a place that doesn't, where people don't really learn other languages very often. So, um, And that's, yeah. <laughs> I, that is an amazing quote. I'm going to have to remember that and sort of repeat it to myself because that's really beautiful, isn't it? And it's, I mean, I have the same level of respect for people when I go back to the States or anywhere I'm traveling and, and I hear somebody speaking who has an accent. I'm just, I'm in awe of what I know their brain is working to do because it is taxing. You're like suppressing, you're push, pushing down that, um, your, your native tongue and your trying so hard to express yourself. And, you know, I, I mean, it would be like inappropriate to cheer someone on, but that's sort of how I feel inside. <laughs> yeah. 100%. Could I, I wanted to ask you a question earlier. You mentioned this and, and I, if you're uncomfortable talking about it, let me know. Um, we can, we can edit this out or skip right past it, but you mentioned that you are a, a non-Jew and you're living in Israel. And I gather that your uh, husband is, is Jewish. So, um, what, you know, to what degree is that, is that challenging? Is it, is it normal? Um, you know, and, and like, how do you, how do you navigate those waters as a, as a family and, and in society, I guess? These are such big questions, Chase. I'm really, I mean, I'm, I love them. Like the interviewer part of me is like, this is a good juicy question. Um, (laughs) I'm glad, but again, like no, no pressure on it because it is a little bit personal. It's it's totally fine. I mean, remember the physical space thing also translates to conversations. And so I'm used to, I'm surprised you're not like, you know, ask me how far along are you? Uh, <laughs> um, so, that would be totally taboo. No, what? I mean, come on. <laughs> no. So are we, are we normal or typical? No. Um, there's not, there's not so many interfaith families here. I've actually, I, uh, my daughter is friends with a little girl whose father is Muslim and her mother is Jewish, which is another interesting combo. And so um, it, it was wonderful to sort, of this, sort of see them playing together and to think about like the very multicultural aspect of this country. Um, it is it is a Jewish majority country, so it seems like it would be easier to navigate. Um, it, it's a, Look, if you're a citizen of Israel, you have equal rights, whether you are um, an Israeli Jew, uh, whether you are an Israeli Muslim, whether you are Arab or Ashkenazi or um, Mizrahi, which is an, another kind of Jewish person, as long as you're a citizen, you have equal rights. It, it does feel as a, as a non-Jew and as a foreign spouse, like there are just things here that seem maybe I, I'm out of the loop or I'm not, you know, it's not easy for me to navigate, but it's not necessarily designed that way in, in any sort of, um, it's not like designed in a hostile way. It's sort of like, okay, well, that's that's how life here is. Here's an example, uh, right? So our older girls, one graduated high school, the other one is in high school. Um, in school, the, the holiday breaks that they have, much like you might have in the States, holiday breaks that seem to revolve around Christian holidays, here, no surprise, they're revolving around Jewish holidays. And so there have been a number of times Christmas has fallen on a weekday and it's a school day. It's a work day. And that has been hard for me to sort of wrap my head around and 
and and you know, I've been like that parent who's like, just skip school, just stay home, <laughs> stay home. It's Christmas, you know. Um, and it's it's been fun also to bring the girls up in a way where they appreciate my holidays too, and they've been very open about that. As has the entire family here, and that was something that I wasn't exactly expecting at first. Um, but Israelis, especially Israeli Jews, are very open to like, oh, okay, you're you're from a different faith. Cool. Um, we're they're probably familiar with it through a lot of Hollywood films, to be honest, and they've traveled a fair amount. Uh, they uh, serve in the military and then many of them uh, travel abroad for a couple of years. They sort of take a gap year, something that I think would be wonderful for us to do in the, the States, by the way. It's, mm, yeah, it's, I'm a big fan. Right. It's a, and that's a whole other conversation and a matter of privilege too. But so they've, they've been around and they've seen different cultures and, um, and faiths. And certainly there are other faiths here, but they're, they've always been really welcoming. So every year we've had a big Christmas party and it's, it's myself and, you know, a bunch of Jewish folks and they're just, they're wearing like reindeer antlers and totally into it. And it is like a bit secular. I'm not trying to like convert anybody. Um, <laughs> You, you will now all be baptized. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's going to be holy water raining down. No, um, but there there aren't so many others. You know, it's sort of I joke that we have some Christmas lights up, and I look around. I'm like, hey, anybody else over here? You know, you see a lot of uh, Hanukkiot menorahs in the window, but there are very few like in in our city. So it's it, it does feel different. But you do get that perspective of okay, I know what it's like now to be someone who isn't part of the majority, and that. That was a shift for me. I'm white Christian from the States. So that was a change. And it definitely gave me a different perspective um, for in terms of what it's like for other folks who have some even like intersectional, like minority identities in in our country in, the, in America or, you know, elsewhere in the world. And I totally understand like the frustration that can arise out of sort of feeling like you either aren't reflected somewhere or like you don't, maybe you feel like you don't belong, even if no one's saying that just by like a lack of representation, you might feel that you don't belong. Um, and then conversely, when you go somewhere, like there are uh, Arab majority cities here where there are uh, Christmas displays, Haifa is one of them. And you go and you just feel like, yes, like I am, <laughs> you kind of feel like I'm, I'm back and I'm the, here's, you know, I'm in the middle of like my kind of celebration. And even if it's done in a, like a very different way, culturally, um, it's still, it feels like more familiar and a little more like home. And so really, I think when, when I consider our interfaith family, it's all about, it's about sharing traditions, making lattes. Uh, my husband has like an insane dreidel game. I don't understand. He can like spin them upside down, which Whoa, is that skill. That's I like, know. that's gotta be so impressive. The kids are probably like, dad's cool. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, this is the most baller move you have. And I just, it took me like a decade to realize this. I have actually, uh, I have a video of it that I should share. It's just amazing. But it's like the the piece for us that I think is really wonderful is we've learned to have a level of tolerance and a level of understanding for for different faiths, faiths that are, you know, in a way tied into one another, right? Like I, I joke that like the New Testament is like the sequel. And I've like sort of said, well, the sequel is better than the original. <laughs> you have fun with it. Yeah, you can you can be lighthearted, and and I think it might be harder if we were a bit more devout. But we we are, you know, we both believe in our faiths, and it's there are compromises that you have to make too, right? Yeah, 
for sure. Yeah, the the whole the whole life abroad thing I think is a is about a lot of compromises. I believe you guys are are doing that in a in a stronger way than than probably most of us have to experience and and uh, I guess to a degree like more challenging way. I mean there's I'm sure there's some intricacies that are that are a bit uh tough to navigate at times, but um it's I think it's pretty I don't know, I don't want to be like hyperbolic and say like inspira- very inspirational, but I I will say it's a little bit inspirational to me to see that there is that like um that ability to move past something as strong as religion for the the betterment of your your family and your your love together and your partnership like there's there's something really cool about that because we spend a ton of time and you know maybe it's a fair place to to just kind of touch on this subject like we when when you talk about Israel a lot of times the the Israel Palestine conversation comes up and people think about like conflict and 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 you guys are in in some ways kind of like embodying this this uh capability to to move past some of these conflicts at times and, and move past differences and just be like, hey, you know, here we are. This is this is how we're doing it. And we're, we're doing this lightheartedly. And um, anyway, like I don't want to try to draw too strong of conclusions between two different things, but there's something there that, that I'm you know probably not able to articulate that I think is really cool. I, I feel like I'm on your wavelength. I, th- I think, you know, that it's possible to transcend some belief systems and, and to be more humanist, like to transcend certain um, certain maybe I don't want to call them principles, but like beliefs that are strongly held and to look at the bigger picture. And I think that in in our life here, you know, we we've obviously like we've traveled a bit as much as we can even while we're here. We've taken the kids to Jordan and gone to visit Petra, which is incredible. Um, and as as relations become normalized with other countries and we're able to travel there in within the Middle East region, we certainly will. Um, there have been times that ha- have been very challenging here and and it's it, the waters have been murky for me. It's not a familiar thing um, to be in a place where there's a conflict and it doesn't happen often. Um, but, you know, one of the things I was worried about as we were uh, as we were recording this is the fact that there's construction happening on the building next door. How is that related to conflict? It's not, except um, all new construction in Israel, uh, if it's residential construction, um, requires that apartments have a built-in shelter. So reinforced walls, um, a steel door, I don't know the like requisite thickness. I'm not, you know, a structural engineer or any of these things. But as I'm watching this building go up next door and it's very I'm just like, oh yeah, oh, they have built-in shelters, which is something we haven't had. Uh, we've lived in older buildings, so our shelter has been in the basement. And um, in times of conflict, which happened last year, uh, one of the few times I was actually home alone in the evening with my little one um, and a siren went off and you sort of, sirens are very specific here. They're tied to like your your city. Um, they might even be divided up within cities so that you like the east versus west part of a city might hear a siren and you hear it elsewhere. You definitely hear it, but it's like meant for one area. So it's very precise. Um, it went off and I thought, okay, is that a drill? You know, I just sort of, I was, I think I was like sitting, scrolling LinkedIn on my phone. Like uh, my daughter was asleep. She's two years old and a neighbor knocked on the door and like rapped on it really hard and basically shouted at me in Hebrew, like, no, 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 let's go. Gotta go down to the shelter to the Miklat. And I was like, oh, okay. And I sort of felt like, how oblivious am I? Like I knew that there had been tensions rising and there were a whole bunch of um, preceding events that sort of that led to this. And I ran and grabbed my daughter. Somebody, a generous neighbor found our cat, you know, because like your cat is not going to be like, cats are not obedient animals. And in, in now, and in the case of an emergency, it is 
really difficult to get those guys like to into a carrier. So I had 90 seconds to run down 60 steps with her barefoot um, down to the shelter and the rockets were right overhead. And that was something I'd never, ever experienced before. Um, and it was life changing. It was definitely life changing for me. Uh, and I, you know, one of the things that I think was so strange was that the kids reacted like kids in the shelter. People would come in, you know, someone was outside walking their dog. They go, you go into the nearest building. That's what you do. It's a, you're in survival mode. And the kids were like crying and scared. And thankfully my daughter was still asleep um, up until a certain point. But I, w- I was feeling like those kids. I was really scared. And the adults were concerned, but they were, it's almost like, you know, they, they're used to it. Like they've lived through it a bunch of times. This is not their first, their first rodeo. Um, and so that was, that was really eye opening for me that this was, it, it's not that they're blase, but it's just having that experience of like, this is part of life. This is an accepted part of life. And then living through, you know, 11 days of that. Um, I, I make a lot of like, sort of, I don't know, one of the ways I cope with difficulty it might not even be apparent from this call, but is with humor. And so I would say like, because we didn't know when there would be a siren, I would say things like, okay, well, we don't know when we can shower because you really don't want to be like that person in a towel sprinting nude um, or whatever. But I, I would joke that like, oh, you know, Pert Plus or any of these products that combine shampoo and conditioner were like really good wartime products. You do it really fast. But the the thing that like the point that I really want to make is that, you know, aside from those things happening and feeling like, oh my gosh, the whole country is just like running to shelters right now, um, which isn't a tenable situation and not something that like any country should have to go through. The flip side of that is after, you know, the conflict ended, I wouldn't say it was resolved, right? Like at this point, it's not. Um, you know, you read about what happens when there are when there are counterstrikes and, you know, the there is collateral damage and you read about, um, as a mom, I was reading about kids in, in Gaza and, and it's hard to feel like you're the target of rockets and it's also very, very hard to see, um, to see loss of life, loss of innocent life on the other side too. And so I think I read a story about a, um, a family that had a 15 year old girl and last year, you know, my younger of the two stepdaughters was 15 and my daughter was two. So they had a 15 year old and a two year old and, I just cried and cried. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's, I think really the crux of it is it's just, it's a lot of loss and it's a lot of, there's so much anger and loss and you just, you really hope for a resolution. And I think many, many people in this country do want that. And I've seen so many very promising signs of it. So like 20% of the population here um, are Arab Israelis. And so they have Palestinian roots and there are, there are schools that are integrated where kids are learning Arabic and Hebrew and they don't, yeah, there's a, great system called Yad Bayad. Um, and I had the privilege of interviewing the principal at the school. Um, and she was very impressive. And she was explaining to me that, look, we bring the kids together and we don't talk about peace. We don't talk about these like really big high level ideas because it's so complicated, but we talk about my pain and your pain, my joy and your joy. And understanding that like some events, some historical events from one perspective are very joyous for some groups and some are sorrowful. And ha- that level of empathy, I think that's something that I will take with me through the rest of my life um, after after living here. And that is something that I think is, it's not portrayed so much in the news, but um, Israelis are really 
Yeah, I, I was. Thank you for sharing all that and and you know going going into the not not dodging the fact that you know conflict is a part of life. I think I I heard you use that phrase, um, and and I think that's important for for people to to know the, the realities in that regard. And then that last point you just made is so important that every we, we really have to get past the headlines that we see and the and the twelve second images we see of soldiers doing one thing that they're commanded to do or or one you know terrible act. Let's not, you know, set, set set those things aside, and let's not dodge the fact that bad things are done on in, in most conflicts on both sides of of any conflict. So, you know, we'll, we'll, you and I aren't geopolitical people. We're not we're not going deep down that road. But like I've I've found being a, becoming a more international person has helped me see more and more that what we see on the news is just such a microcosm of what is actually happening. You talking about so many Israelis having a different viewpoint than what the headlines would lead you to believe about what they're hoping for around peace. And and like I, I found this to be true with like the, the Russia-Ukraine war right now. I know people that are from both sides of that. And if you don't know the people that are on both sides, you would have no idea that like there are like Russians like fleeing Russia that are just like doing everything they can to fight back against their government within control of what they have. Like they're 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 very they're at a lot of risk um to do so. But it's not like they hate Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians that I talk to go, I know the guy on the other side doesn't, you know, they're there's nothing there, there's there's more there there's a human there and so anyway I, I think this is something that you you learn even more by immersing yourself in in other cultures and seeing that we're a lot more alike than we are different I couldn't have put it better yes 100 percent and in fact we've had a lot of uh, Russian immigrants to Israel um, recently so one of the things that I I didn't mention and I am I'm glad we touched on that even though it, it is it's really challenging it's very it's it's a very intricate complex situation and like you mentioned people get the sound bites and the snippets and things are uncontextualized and it's it's really I think it'd be really difficult to try to wade through this like looking at it as an outsider even living in it it's really like as you said we're not you know geopolitical experts here um, but I, I think you know from a welcoming perspective. Um, so Israel, as I mentioned, is a country of immigrants. Like you go to the hospital, and like the signs there are in English, Arabic, uh, Russian, Hebrew, and Amharic. Wow, <laughs> that's fascinating. <laughs> yeah, um, and and that's very typical, and it's it's wonderful. It reminds me, like, okay, you know, you're no matter what, like you're you're really welcome here. Yeah. That's, and I would want people to sort of walk away from this podcast. We didn't even get into all the food chase. We're well, well, I know. I, so let, like, can I just ask you that? Like, I'm going to do one big, broad question real quick, because okay. I know I know you've got um, we've got a, a hard stop here. So what in a in a um, like what surprised you about Israel coming to Israel as an outsider fr- from that standpoint? Like you get there and you're like, OK, people, I had this image of Israel in this way, but there's the food, the landscapes, the the X, the Y, whatever it is. Like what what is it that jumps out to you? And you tell people, no, 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 you can find this here because that's what I want to know. Spoken like someone who has lived abroad, um, quite obviously. So I think I had this perspective that like, well, the Middle East is an arid place. And it's, I mean, I'm not an expert on climates, but I, I realize now, oh, no, it's it's much more, um, it's much more interesting than that, right? We've got Mount Hermon in the north that gets, uh, that gets snow and people can ski there. And we also have a very arid region in the south, the desert, the Negev. 
um, the like breadth and depth of different cultures that existed here in the past. Like you could be having brunch at some swanky hotel in, in Jaffa, which is um, south of Tel Aviv. And you could see like Byzantine church ruins through the full floor. You could go visit an, an old, like ancient Turkish hammam. Um, there are just so many, like the, the Ottoman empire was here there Knights Templar there. There are just layers upon layers of history that when we think about Israel, we, we sort of default to, okay, well, there's Jerusalem and like the Bible and all these, obviously like volumes of history there, but it's just, it's so much more um, rich and robust and complicated than I, ever, than I ever knew. So there's that. And then the food also plays into that, right? You've got a lot of um, uh, in, influences from all over Eastern Europe, from different immigrants. You have various Arab specialties, Malawah, Matbucha, Labne, things from Northern Africa. Africa. Just that, like the diversity of food, Chase. Wow. I I would endorse moving here based just on the food. <laughs> just on the food. <laughs> just on the food. Um, absolutely. You can you can put that in the podcast. But I think beyond that, it's um yeah, it's it's also a great point if you are a traveler and you want to go to other parts of the world. India isn't so far. There's a direct flight to Seychelles. There's um in you know, in Africa, there's so many other places you can visit that are relatively close. Like for someone who grew up in a place that is so as isolated as America is in terms of of flights and travel. Yeah, um, that's a that's a great point about it being a jumping off point to so many beautiful parts of the world. Um, you're you're kind of right in the center of the universe there, in, in terms of like being able to get to every continent essentially in the in the um, in that part of the world and and lots of different cultures and climates and um, and I think that's fascinating to know that like I, I, when I think of Israel, I don't think of like you can go skiing in the mountains there. Okay, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so yeah, you've you've shed so much light on on a country that I think a lot of people don't know as much about as they tend to think they know. Um, and uh, and getting the inside perspective from an outsider's point of view is really interesting for me. Pretty pretty much like the epitome of why I wanted to start this podcast. So thank you for delivering on every single note in that regard and um, and sharing so yeah. much and uh, and not dodging the, the tough questions. And, you know, I, I think this was, uh, if, if not for anybody else, it was super interesting and enjoyable for me. So really appreciate it. And um, yeah, look forward to following the journey closer. Thank you so much, Chase. That that means an awful lot. And I love what you're doing with the podcast. I'm enjoying it. I know everybody listening is too. Um, there's maybe two more questions I wanted to ask you real, really quickly. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've, like, got, I've got time. I don't want to keep you any longer. So <laughs> well, um, if, if there was an emoji, an emoji, I know this is not like a really serious question, but an emoji that you had to associate with either your like new home in Germany or like your home in Spain, you know, mm -hmm. what would it be and why? Which uh, I overuse this emoji, I think, and I, but it's an easy answer for me. It's the one with the big smile, but with the sweat coming off the brow. Um, and I, and I use that in a lot of, I actually do use it a lot, but it does describe me because I kind of go into all these with like that, like classic, like, uh, like shit eating grin where you're just like, I think I'm going to be able to do this, but like, I'm kind of nervous about it. And, uh, and, and I kind of enjoy the, the nervousness, like a, a masochist, I guess, in a little way or something. Um, so yeah, I, I would say that one. Do you have an answer? I do. But I, you know, as I try to describe it on the podcast, I just have to like show you it's this okay. one. It's, 
Ah, the little hand. Yeah, the hand. It's like, what do you want? But it's also, it could it could be like, oh, tell me more. You know, like it has so much meaning just wrapped up in this one gesture. And it was amazing when they released this emoji because I think people here felt like, yes, okay, internet culture finally gets us because this exists. Um, that is definitely representative of Israel. And there, the other um, point I wanted to bring up when we talked about visas, I didn't mention at all the right, uh, or sorry, the, the law of return. I'd be remiss in not mentioning this if somebody is Jewish or has a Jewish grandparent. So you don't have to personally be Jewish, but like somebody somewhere back in your family tree, then you uh, qualify under the law of return to immigrate to Israel and um, have an easier path here, certainly than I did. So that is something that I wanted to mention um, because I didn't cover that before. And there are certainly people for whom that applies. Very good to know. Thank you uh, once again. And um, before we sign off, can you just uh, remind people where they can follow you, learn more, perhaps reach out if uh, if needed, also where they can learn more about um, your company founders? And, uh, and we'll put all of those links in the show notes as well. Wonderful. Yeah. So you can follow me um, on Twitter at ReallyChristy. And I'm probably more active on LinkedIn. So I think there might be one other person named Christy DePaul. You're going to have to decide which one is which. I'm CEO of Founders, so that should be pretty obvious. Um, Would love to connect with you there. Uh, I'm regularly contributing to Harvard Business Review, writing about career navigation and workforce trends. Would love for listeners to uh, give a read to some of those articles and share their thoughts with me. Would love to hear um, what you think. That's where you and I connected, actually. That's right. Yeah. Um, And uh, let's see. Other than that, uh, Founders is founders.marketing. We've got a blog. Check it out. It's about, we focus on learning and earning and what this sort of journey through life is like as we see the lines blurred between um, life in school and life, uh, our professional lives, right? Because we're actually now always learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And especially those of us uh, making ourselves infants again by, by venturing into new lands and languages. (laughs) We're, uh, we're starting from the bottom and it's a, it's a fun, it's a fun climb to the top, I guess. So very much so. Uh, <laughs> just send me some good vibes for my Misrat uh, Abnim meeting tomorrow. Um, let's yeah. let's hope that all goes well. Yeah. Good luck with the interview. Bring your photo collage. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I do wish you the best of luck. I'm going through a, a similar, I think, slightly less intense process as we speak. So we'll oh. send each other some good visa vibes. And, um, okay. and yeah, uh, great talking with you, Christy. I really enjoyed it and uh, look forward to catching up again soon. Likewise. Take care, Chase. Bye. Thanks for tuning in today from wherever you are in the world. Once again, I'm Chase, and this has been another episode of About Abroad. For those of you wondering how you can best support the show, I have made it super simple for you. Just go over to the show notes of the episode that you just finished listening to and click on one of the two following links aboutabroad.com slash newsletter to get our monthly newsletter. No spam, guaranteed or ratethispodcast.com slash aboutabroad, where you can quickly and easily leave a review for the show. It's not just important to me, it also helps more wanderers just like you find us. Finally, don't forget to subscribe on your podcast platform of choice, and we will see you again next week. Thanks again. Hasta luego, amigos.